Are you weary? Not just physically, I mean, but tired of keeping going as a follower of Jesus. I've been chatting to a few people recently about the challenges of living as a Christian in the city. And it's hard, isn't it? Now, one of them was telling me how many of her friends would constantly ridicule her faith. So, you believe that some carpenter lived 2,000 years ago, raised from the dead, and that's the God of the universe? Oh, this Christian thing, ah, uh, yeah, but hasn't science proved that it's all superstition anyway? And these questions are even those of honest inquirers, but of gleeful mockers. We are sophisticated urbanites, not country bumpkins. We, we don't just believe anything and everything under the sun. Uh, another friend was relating to me his heartache when he saw other Christians, professing Christians, in the workplace not living as they should. What defined them? Crass jokes, gossip, career, and money. After all, isn't the city the place to improve my lot? Isn't the city the place to make a name for myself? The Financial Times recently published a survey on the uh, future of cities worldwide. Uh, it argued that the new meta-cities, uh, that's what it calls cities with over 20 million people, uh, are engines of growth and uh, personal wealth. As the paper explains, the city is a place where there's a huddling together of humanity. It's a symbol of a hope of a better life, and it's a pooling of natural and intellectual resources. And it's a potential utopian vision in the making, isn't it? And uh, even professing Christians get sucked into it. It becomes all about my ambition. And so my friend found it hard to be salt and light uh, when his unbelieving colleagues could point to uh, the other guys and say, what about them? They aren't as hung up on their religion as you are. And then, that's just the size of the city. Yet another person was lamenting to me how hard it was just to meet other people. You know, you call someone and they say, sorry, busy, next time, okay? And it's especially hard when you've just graduated from university or you've just moved from somewhere else. You know, you've been part of a close-knit Christian community and suddenly that disappears. There's the loss of intimacy. People move on to different stages of life. Uh, some go on into further education, some get married, some move to other, uh, other places for work. And then, there's the loss of familiarity. There's a different routine now, uh, meeting different people. And even 
in the midst of the crowds of the city, it can feel quite isolating. You feel on your own, anonymous. There are so many other reasons that we get weary and tired as a follower of Jesus. Some long-term problem, some relationship gone sour, some constant discouragement. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. So, chapter 18, if you close your Bibles, you open up, up again. And verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. Now, as he left that city, what condition was Paul in? Let's review his trip so far. It didn't even start off on the right footing. There was a sharp disagreement with his fellow worker, Barnabas. And that's 15 verse 39. I mean, Barnabas wasn't even the kind of guy you felt good disagreeing with. Paul was beaten with rods and imprisoned in Philippi. And that's 16 verse 22 to 24. He had to sneak out of Thessalonica to escape a mob. And that's 17 verse 10. Ministry in Beria seemed to be going well, but he had to abandon the work there too because some Jews from Thessalonica came down uh, to hunt him. And that's 17 verse 13 to 14. At Athens, we were there two weeks ago, in an utterly foreign culture, he is called a babbler, mock, and he doesn't really see much fruit from his work. Uh, that's 17 verse 32 to 34. And we haven't even talked about his previous missionary journey, where he was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. And that's 14 verse 19, uh, not 29. Uh, oh, okay. Let's cut off. It's 14 verse 19. Everywhere he goes, there's trouble. So I think it's more than fair to say that when Paul left Athens, he was tired. He was weary. And he was downbeat. That wouldn't be so bad if the rest of verse 1 read, Paul left Athens and went home for some R&R and fellowship. But instead, Paul, verse 1, went to Corinth, all on his own. And he tells us how he felt about that in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. And I was with you, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. No surprise there. After all, does he have any reason to believe that things would get better? If anything, things would probably get worse. Why? Well, when Paul wanders into Corinth and picks up a brochure from the tourist information office. This is what 
he would have learned about the place. It was the foremost commercial center in ancient Greece. It was also the seat of government in the provincial, as the provincial capital of Achaia. And prosperity and power would have been their tagline. Sure, the city might have been destroyed by Rome in 146 BC, but a Corinthian could say proudly, oh, we've recovered from all that, we've rebuilt ourselves. We are cosmopolitan. People from all over the empire come to us. So, merchants, traders, sailors, slaves, Greeks, Jews. We are really cultural. A place of music and the arts. We even host the Ishman Games, which is second uh, in importance only to the Olympics. Corinth is a place dripping with success and sophistication. And it's not a place for the faint-hearted. More than that, however, it was also a hedonistic place. So to live like a Corinthian is to party day and night. So the Greek philosopher Plato uh, used the term Corinthian girl to mean a prostitute. To say, you Corinthian, is to indicate something about your lifestyle. And I don't mean that of a monk. It was also full of pagan religious sites. So if you walk down one street, uh, you see the temple of Aphrodite, and that's the god of love. You walk down another street, and you see an altar to Apollo, and that's the god of music and love. Uh, sorry, I song, not love. And so on. Now, if you were one of the Corinthian Christians receiving a letter from Paul later on, imagine how striking his command, flee from idolatry, must sound, given that you're in a place surrounded by idols. This is the kind of place Paul is walking into as he proclaims the gospel. It's intimidating. No wonder, he says, he comes with fear and trembling. Actually, this isn't so different from Kuala Lumpur, is it? Now, here's something I picked up from a tourism brochure recently. Quote, The fortunes of Kuala Lumpur have seen a small town grow into a spectacular cosmopolitan city in just a century. A delightful mix of cross-cultural influences and traditions, Kuala Lumpur radiates excitement and enticement. Lose yourself in its unique blend of tradition, old world charm, and new world sophistication. In recent years, KL has played host to the elite Commonwealth Games, second only to the Olympics. 
unquote. And like Corinth, there are literal shrines that dot our city. Uh, some of them are more obvious, like those uh, in Batu Caves. But some of them less obvious, like the giant shopping complexes and offering to the gods of consumerism. And while there may be no statue of Aphrodite, how much of our city is bonded to the idea of perfect romantic love? There may be no statue of Apollo, but is he worshipped in the night spots along Bangsa and the Asian heritage road? And in the face of all this, the question is, how can we keep on keeping on as Christians when we are weary, tired, and weak? What does God have to say to us? Firstly, God says, keep trusting because he is always working out his plan wherever we are. Keep trusting because he is always working out his plan wherever we are. And that's verses 2 to 4. Verse 2. And Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla are Jews from Italy and presumably they are already Christians. They were here having had to leave Rome with little notice. And the Roman historian Suetonius tells us why. The Jews in Rome constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he records. So it seems as if the Jews in Rome were becoming seriously divided uh, over Christian claims about Jesus. And the emperor got tired of it all eventually, and he just said to them, All you troublemakers, just, just leave now. So Aquila and Priscilla are forced to look for a new home. And they're subtle in Corinth, where a certain apostle finds them. And they prove to be an absolute blessing for Paul. Remember, Paul is on his own here. Here were some fellow Jews now, whom he could work with, and whom he could stay with. Verse 3. And they proved to be an absolute blessing, not just for Paul, but for many other Christians as well. So later on in verse 19, Paul could leave them at Ephesus to strengthen the church there. Now, next week, uh, we'll discover how exactly God used Aquila and Priscilla. So come back for the rest of the story. But Aquila and Priscilla eventually do make their way back to Rome, although we're not sure when. And in Romans 16 verse 3 to 4, we find Paul greeting them, his fellow workers in Christ Jesus, 
who risk their necks for my life, and to whom all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Obviously, wherever they were, they were centered on the gospel, and God used them for his glory. God hasn't just placed Priscilla and Aquila here, though. He's also placed Paul here. Now, Paul has always known that he is this far west to preach the gospel. And that was his commission. And this he continues to do. So have a look uh, at verse 4. And Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. But Paul has to take the harder road. So back in verse 3. Um, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for there were ten makers by trade. This superstar apostle has to forego his rights, choosing to work with his own hands, making tents and other leathery things, even though such work was looked down upon in Corinth. More than that, it took him away from what he wanted most to do, which was to preach the gospel. So why then does he do so? Well, Paul is walking the talk here. By working, he showcases a good work ethic and also ensures that he can offer the gospel of grace free of charge. Now, this would have contrasted with the other Greek teachers around who would have taken money, who would have charged money for their lectures. Sure, it must have been frustrating. But, God, uh, but Paul knows he is to be faithful to the gospel, not just in preaching it, but in living in light of it. And God will work out his plan, whatever the season. Brothers and sisters, it is the same with us. Things might be really tough now in your colleges, in your workplaces, at home. There are problems that pop out of nowhere. Maybe your job is really exhausting and not at all secure. Maybe you find no signs of interest in your faith, in your current environment, but indifference, maybe even hostility. Maybe visa authorities have even expelled you from another country. Now, to keep trusting is not to adopt a don't worry, be happy mentality, as if that would solve anything. Instead, it is to rest secure in the knowledge that God is still working out his plan wherever we are, in circumstances good and bad. Now, the Christian writer, Oskinus, notes, before we are called to something or somewhere, we are first and foremost called to someone. 
we belong to the Lord Jesus who has shown his love for us on the cross. The same Lord Jesus to whom everything and everyone everywhere is now subject to. Every square inch of earth belongs to Jesus. God used a difficult situation in Attila and Priscilla's life and brought them to places where they could best be ambassadors for him. Likewise, God can use difficult situations in our lives to bring us to places where we can serve him best. And brothers and sisters, we can get alongside each other and encourage each other to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, as sinners, we all lose sight of who God is. We stumble along the way. We forget the gospel of grace. But when we remind each other of who the gospel is, of who God is, of what grace is about, then we can truly believe that God is working out his plan wherever we are. We can keep trusting. So here at SMAC, let's not stop reminding each other of the gospel. Secondly, God says, keep persevering because his gospel always provokes division. God says, keep persevering because his gospel always provokes division. And that's in verses 5 to 8. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Silas and Timothy arrive, probably with financial aid from Macedonia, which frees up Paul to essentially focus on gospel ministry. And to the Jews, he testifies that Jesus is the Christ. So he likely would have outlined Old Testament expectations of the Messiah and showed how Jesus fulfilled it. Maybe in words similar to his traveling companion, uh, Luke. So, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, that is Jesus. Uh, that's from Luke, uh, quoting in part Isaiah. But sadly, the response is predictable. They are offended and they reject the gospel. So Paul, one, shakes his garments and two, says to them, verse six, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now when Paul dusts off his clothes, he's not being fashion conscious. It's a symbolic act saying, I'm done with you. I proclaim to you the message of salvation, the best that I could, and I will do no more. And when he says, your blood be on your own heads, Paul 
isn't cursing. He's actually quoting from Ezekiel. Now the prophet Ezekiel was tasked by God to be a watchman. And he functions like one of those tsunami warning centers. So he is to warn the wicked to turn from their evil ways before the tsunami of judgment comes. So, Ezekiel, if you do not speak out, the wicked man will die for his sin. But I, God, will hold you accountable as well. But if you proclaim my message faithfully, then you have played your part. It is up to the wicked man to repent. So Paul is saying, like Ezekiel, I have been a faithful watchman. You, Jews, will have to bear responsibility for your actions. And when Paul says he will now go to the Gentiles, he's not being a spoiled brat. Daddy, I don't want to friend the Jews anymore. After all, he does visit synagogues elsewhere later on. What he is saying is that right now, here in Corinth, his focus is no longer on the Jewish community. Now, that must have been really hard for Paul. I mean, his own people, those who should have most in common with him, those who know the scriptures, have chosen to reject the gospel. But he knows that his role is simply to testify to Christ, as is our role. It's really hard, isn't it, when those close to us seem close to the gospel? So, our family, our friends, maybe even friends who have been in church with us, people who know something about the gospel, who know something about the Bible, yet they have not been receptive to it. But we need to recognize that in the end, each person will have to decide for themselves to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. We testify to Christ. We do not bind someone to Him. Now, Paul doesn't exactly abandon the Jews completely. He he relocates, rather amusingly, not to the other side of town, but just next door. Verse 7. Now, that decision might seem, at first glance, to be a bit of a childish confrontation. You know, let's play whose religion is better. See who comes to uh, my face more. But actually, what we have here is continued access to the preaching of the gospel. So any Jew could still go and listen to Paul preach God's word. The difference is, such access is no longer available in the synagogue itself. So in Romans 11, verse 13 to 14, Paul says that he magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles 
in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So the call to repent and believe is never on mute. Now perhaps even today, some of you hear that call afresh. Friends, if that is the case, don't delay any longer. Trust in Jesus. Come back to Him. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. Those are pictures of new life. And new life can only be found in Jesus and not outside Him. So come to Jesus. And Christians, take heart. When Paul moves, he does not move alone. There are Jews who trust in Jesus. So none other than Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, together with his household, switches teams. And Titus Justus, another believer, is even willing to provide a place for the Christians to me. Uh, no light decision, I'm sure. He probably even lost some friends over it. But here in pagan Corinth, with its many gods, many barriers, many distractions, many of the Corinthians believe and were baptized. Verse 8. The word of the cross might be folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. There are those who are being hardened, but there are also those whose hearts are being softened. In Corinth and in Kuala Lumpur. So keep persevering in the gospel. There are people who will call Jesus Lord and live like it. Thirdly, God says, Take courage because God is with us always. Take courage because God is with us always. And that's in verses 9 to 11. Paul, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, even amid signs of success, Paul must have still been feeling anxious. And why not? Success means jealousy. Success means that those mobster Jews could shut him down more easily. I mean, let's face it, whenever Paul opened his mouth, there was trouble. So no doubt Paul entertained thoughts of toning down his message. Maybe time to keep a low profile. Take a break. Ah, yeah. No need to be always so fanatic, lah. And so God speaks. Do not be afraid. God isn't saying you will never feel fear. But God is saying to Paul, take courage. 
Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. And God is saying to some of you students today, keep on testifying to me in your words, in your life. Even when it's not intellectually fashionable. Even when it's not popular with your peers. He's saying to you workers, keep on speaking the truth even when it's easier to spin it instead. Keep working hard in a culture of idleness. Keep your priorities in a culture of overwork. He's saying to you parents, keep teaching your children in the ways of the Lord. He's saying to you gospel workers, keep on laboring for the Lord. Keep going even when there's not much fruit and you're feeling completely inadequate. Don't go weary. Don't give up. Take courage. But why? Why not be afraid? Because, verse 10, I am with you. This is the promise God makes to his people. Now, you might remember in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, which we looked at uh, just over a month ago, uh, God tells Israel there, uh, I will go before you and I will never leave nor forsake you. And in Hebrews 13 verse 5, the writer of the Hebrews quotes Deuteronomy and applies that to Christians. And this is what Jesus promised his disciples after the resurrection. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, not everything here that is promised to Paul is true for us. So, verse 10, God says to Paul, No one will attack you to harm you here in Corinth. And as you'll see in a moment, that turns out to be true. But God doesn't say that to us. He doesn't say that we won't suffer. What we can be certain, however, is that if you are a child of God, trusting in Jesus, God is with you. At home, with your family, at school, with your friends, at work, with your colleagues. God is with you. And we can be sure of this. Notice the encouragement at the end of verse 10. God says to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. And hasn't God proven that already? He sends Priscilla and Aquila Paul's way. Silas and Timothy arrive safely from Macedonia. Titius Justus and Crispus shows that there's hope even among the Jews. And many of the Corinthians believe. And God says, don't stop. There's more. Keep on speaking. And so Paul stays 18 months to teach the word of God, which must have been such a luxury compared to the other places he's been in. 
Now I think of a friend who, at every stage of his life, heard the gospel because the Christians in his life were prepared to speak. So Taiwanese missionaries spoke to him about Jesus、uh, in his hometown, and other Christians befriended him and brought him along to church. And two people separately、uh, sat down and studied the Bible with him. And over dinner, close to two years now, to my huge surprise, he announced to me that he had become a Christian. And I know today that he is still growing、uh, because people are speaking the word of God to him, and he himself. Uh, speaks the word to others. Fourthly, God says, "Be confident, for God can and does use anyone to advance His purposes." Be confident, for God can and does use anyone to advance His purposes, and that's in verses twelve to seventeen. Now the Jews are at it again. They cook up a charge against Paul that this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. That's verse thirteen. Now the Jews might possibly have been appealing to the fact that under the law they were meant to be left undisturbed as a community with their own unique customs. So Paul's teaching of the word "gatals" or that. In other words, it might be a matter of national security, so the Romans should get involved. And here we are reminded that the gospel message is not just a private one; it will have social and political consequences. But God fulfills His promise to Paul here to protect him. Paul doesn't even need to open his mouth. Galileo simply dismisses the case. This is a matter for the theologians, not the civil authorities.、And、such a decision is a momentous one. Galileo is a rising political star, and he certainly knows small fry. And his ruling is going to have effects all over the empire. By saying that one. Gospel proclamation is not illegal, and two, that the state should not settle religious questions. The gospel is free to progress. Paul is free to proclaim the gospel.、So、can you see the encouragement in that? God is using a Roman authority as his instrument to fulfill his plan. And don't be surprised at what sort of situations and circumstances God can use. That isn't to say all will be instantly well. So the Jews, angry at his decision, sees Sosthenes, who seems at the very least to be sympathetic to the Christians, and they beat him up. And Galileo doesn't intervene at all. Maybe Galileo was simply playing his cards right, 
you know, let the Jews bend their anger, anger a little bit, and then things would cool off. But whatever it might be, we know that being a Christian is never pain-free. What we know, however, is that God's purposes will always advance no matter what, and we can be confident in that. Finally, God says, be thankful, for he is all of grace. Be thankful, for he is all of grace. And that's verses 18 to 23. Now we now come to the end of the second missionary journey. Paul finally leaves Corinth and he eventually ends up back where he started in Antioch. We learn that along the way, he has taken a vow of some sort, uh, probably a Nazarite vow. Now this involves letting your hair grow a little bit, and then you cut it all off. It was taken by the Jews to express, in this case, thanksgiving. And Paul has much to thank God for. God's providence and protection has been evident all throughout his journey. The gospel of grace is going to all the nations. And even by taking this vow, Paul is giving expression to the gospel. For the vow is not taken out of obligation, but out of a response of gratitude. He is free to thank God in this particularly Jewish way. God is all of grace. And it's no wonder, in verse 21, Paul can confidently declare his utmost dependence on God. He trusts God to bring him back to the Ephesians if that is his will. We get tired. We get weary. And it's hard to keep going. And in our passage today, Luke doesn't just give us a pep talk. He gives us a glimpse instead to a Paul who was fearful and trembling. A Paul who found the city of Corinth with all its idols and sophistication intimidating. But Paul was able to keep going. Because we not only get a glimpse of Paul, but we get a glimpse of God. This God, our God, is working out His purposes, His plan, wherever we are. This God, our God, has entrusted us with the gospel that will divide. This God, our God, has promised that He will always be with us, his people. And this God, our God, is fully capable of using anyone to advance his purposes. Friends, we may be wary, but we can keep going when we find our true rest in Jesus. He is all of grace. Let us pray.
Father, you know how hard it is uh, to live daily for you. You know that sometimes we get tired, we get weary. And Lord, we just pray that we will keep trusting in you. Please help us to have a bigger vision of who you are. To remember the gospel afresh. To remember your death on the cross. uh, Your resurrection from the dead. That you are ruling over all. And that we can trust in you and hold on to you. Uh, So please help us to do that uh, as we leave uh, this place today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.